Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Caitlin Tan. And I'm Mason Adams. This week, we've pulled a few gems from our archive. We're listening back to some of our favorite Inside Appalachia stories from the past year. Like, do animals feel love? Love? L-O-V-E? I know, I know, I know. No, there's no such thing. And yet we see it all the time with animals. So why is it that we tend to not want to really believe what we see? And a story that went viral about a punk musician in eastern Kentucky who discovered a legendary luthier and learned to build banjos. I just felt that, like, it was important for this, like, rad, like, 97-year-old man to know that, like, somebody is carrying on, like, this tradition in the same workshop that he was. We've got an update on Bradford Harris's story and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Today, we're listening back to some of our favorite and most popular stories from the past year. We start off with the story about love. Back in February for a Valentine's episode, we had a question. Do animals feel love? If you've ever observed animals interact, it seems like they feel love. Like, think about penguins. They mate for life. Or elephants, before they mate, they form a bond through their trunks and they wrap them together. Kind of like a hug. So is it true? Do animals actually feel love? A few years back, our producer Roxy Todd saw an otter that got her thinking about this question. So I asked her about it. She looked really sad um, all by herself on the rocks, not playing because there's no one to play with and not swimming. Roxy says she'd expected to see not one otter, but lots of otters doing what otters typically do. You know, like when you picture otters, what do you picture? Like they're having fun. Right. And like silky, brown, velvety guys <laughs> with big, beautiful eyes. <laughs> yeah. And like swimming. I, I don't know. I So I had this picture in my head, maybe like an expectation that they were going to be frolicking and doing all these tricks in the water. This otter seemed despondent. I just kept wondering, like, what happened? And what was going through her head? And and could she feel things like loneliness, I guess? And if she could feel loneliness, Roxy wondered, could she also feel other emotions? Like, could she feel love? To find out, I called up Rich Rogers. Now, he's the fur bear biologist for the West Virginia Division of Natural Resources, and he's also helping study the regional otter population. And so I asked him if there's noticeable love between otters and maybe perhaps with their young. Noticeable what? Love with otters. Like if if they, if you notice, I guess, with their young. Love? L-O-V-E? I know, I know, I know. No, there's no such thing. There's no (laughs) such thing as in the animal kingdom. That, that, that's an that's an emotional term, uh, but there there's a fidelity to that family unit unit until those young disperse, and then no, there's nothing there. But come on, that's the science side of things, right? I mean, I grew up surrounded by animals on a farm, and I felt genuine love from animals. And I also observed how lonely our one horse was until we got him a companion. Now, Roger says love is an emotional term, but don't animals also have emotions? Since Darwin, scientists have thought that there are some basic emotions that um, animals can feel. That's Cynthia Willett, a professor of philosophy at Emory University. She published a book called Interspecies Ethics in 2014, which explores animals' wide variety of emotions. Basic ones would include sadness. We could recognize that in animals, and I think we all can see that animals can be sad or happy. Um, But Darwin did not include love. He did not include love among those basic emotions. And so there's been this prejudice or this bias, uh, at least since that time, that animals could not experience love. And yet we see it all the time with animals. So why is it that we tend to not want to really believe what we see? I mean, what makes us humans so special that only we can feel love? 
Well, it says there's a few different types of animal love that she's studied. The mother to offspring love, which she says is clearly established, but also friendship love. Well, it says in a recent study, a snake became friends with a hamster, its prey, and that they even cuddled together. And so the third type of animal relationship... The most surprising kind of love at all is romantic love. Like love love, like not just friendship love. Well, it says a good example of this behavior is with birds. So much like us, birds have courtship rituals. Basically, they date. They bring food to one another, do dances, clean one another. Honestly, everything you want in a partner. So animals generally are social creatures, Willett says. They need companionship, which in a way is a form of love. And without it, they start to lose that joie de vivre, that sense of being alive. Joie de vivre is a French phrase, meaning that sense of life that gives us purpose, that makes life fuller and richer. Something we often find through relationships. Love. And Willett says animals feel it too. And when they don't have that, they shrink. They diminish. They have less energy. Life goes dull. Although Willett hasn't studied otters specifically, anecdotally she says she's seen them play and bond with each other and humans. And that they kind of remind her of how dogs love. So, yes, Willett says she believes otters do feel love. And it's not that the science or biologists are wrong. There just might be more nuance. And for the West Virginia Wildlife Center, where Roxy originally saw that lonely otter, well, Trevor Moore, the biologist at the center, says he can't definitively rule one way or another on love, loneliness, or any human-like emotion. Animals definitely have personalities. There are definitely individual personalities. Um, you can see that, that that's very well documented throughout the science and in, in captivity and in the wild. But how much we project our own emotions and our own view of them, I don't know. And good news, a few months after we originally aired this story back in February, the West Virginia Wildlife Center got two new otters. So there are now three otters, and Roxy actually went to visit them recently and reports that two of them were snuggling together on a rock. The Wildlife Center also got two new wolf pups this year. We've posted photos on our website, wvpublic.org. So what do you think? Do you think the animals can feel love? Let us know inside Appalachia at wvpublic.org. Or send us a letter, 600 Capitol Street, Charleston, West Virginia, 25301. Earlier this year, we heard a story that later got picked up nationally. Lots of people wrote us about this story. So when we decided to do a best of episode, this was one of the first that came to mind. It's about a 21-year-old punk rocker in Harlan County, Kentucky. During the pandemic, Bradford Harris decided to learn to play the banjo, and that led to a search for a 97-year-old banjo maker. Nicole Musgrave has the story. Southeast Kentucky is home to a vibrant punk rock music scene. That's the band Lips from Harlan. They used to play out a couple times a month, but they had to stop playing live shows because of COVID-19. All I'd been doing was like booking shows and like touring and like playing with like bands and then like everything I was doing I couldn't do anymore. Bradford Harris is the guitarist and lead vocalist of the band. But Bradford also recently started playing old time music. In this part of Kentucky, it's pretty common for punk musicians to also play old time. And during the pandemic, Bradford started messing with the banjo. It wasn't until like this year that I actually like really started appreciating it. One day, Bradford was looking up tunes on YouTube and came across a video of someone talking about making banjos. Bradford's dad runs the woodshop at the local community college. So Bradford got the idea that the two of them should build a banjo. I'm not an instrument maker, you know. I'm a cabinet and furniture guy. That's Bradford's dad, Steve. To figure out how to build a banjo, Bradford ordered a kit from the internet. And Steve pulled out his set of Foxfire books to reference the chapter on banjo making. 
Then the two of them got to work. He knows so much about like woodworking that like I can't even fathom to know about and like I know stuff about instruments that he wouldn't even like consider. The two of them built their first banjo this past summer and they haven't stopped since. Bradford even quit a job at a local car wash to focus on building banjos. They've joined online banjo building forums and Facebook groups, and they've connected with banjo players and makers from around the area. But Bradford stumbled upon one of their best sources of instruction while using a sander at the shop one day. And out of the corner of my eye, I could see like a banjo neck like hanging out of the shelf, and I was like, I will worry about this later. I I just saw something cool. Bradford went to investigate and uncovered a stockpile of handmade tools, banjo templates, and detailed handwritten notes about building instruments. They'd been left behind by a guy who used to work in the shop. His name was Al Cornett. Al retired years ago after working at the college as an instrument builder and teacher. He would write down things that I would have never thought about. You could tell, like, he was writing down, like, years of experience and, like, His drawings are, like, superb, and although he hadn't been in that shop for 15 years, like, he's been, like, one of the most monumental people in, like, me learning how to, like, build. Bradford knew that a luthier had previously worked in the shop at the college, but didn't know much else. I had just heard about him, and, you know, and somebody was like, I doubt he's still alive. Uh, And I was like, well, I mean, you know, it's worth checking. Bradford started asking around the college to see what people knew about Al and where he might be. But all anybody knew was that if Al was still around, he was probably in his 90s. Undeterred, Bradford posted on social media looking for more information. And somebody was like, yeah, I know Al, I go like check on him every now and then. And I was like, this is it. I was like, the search begins. With confirmation that Al was in fact still living, Bradford was determined to meet him. Finally, after several weeks of searching and trying to get in touch with Al. How, how old were you when you started building instruments? Bradford was able to visit with them. They sat down in Al's living room, and a friend recorded the meeting on video. I started in 1977. Awesome. So, uh, what was it? So you said you first started building dulcimers? I started building dulcimers, yeah. I have the first one I built. Oh, really? (laughs) That's awesome. During the visit... Al talked about his experiences as a luthier, and he shared some tricks of the trade with Bradford. Al even talked about some of the more challenging projects he worked on, like the one time he built a fiddle. What's your favorite instrument that you built? I worked seven years on the fiddle. Al picked up the fiddle he spent seven years making. Is that, have you made more fiddles than that one? No. <laughs> that was the last fiddle Al ever made. Takes, takes too long. In pre-pandemic times, when punk shows in southeast Kentucky were still going loud and strong, Bradford wouldn't have thought they'd be tracking down someone like Al. If you had told me, like, you know, a year ago that I would be playing, like, old-time music and doing, like, these, like, old-time history stuff and going and meeting old, like, banjo players and stuff, I would have been like, no, nah, probably not. But I also wouldn't have thought that there would have been, like, a pandemic, so. (laughs) And Bradford was grateful to get the chance to thank Al in person. I just felt that, like, it was important for this, like, rad, like, 97-year-old man to know that, like, somebody is carrying on, like, this tradition in the same workshop that he was. Bradford's eager to book and play punk shows again. But for now, at least, they'll keep making banjos. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Harlan County, Kentucky. Since this story originally aired in February, Al Cornett, Bradford's mentor in making instruments, passed away at the age of 97. Bradford still has a few handmade banjos for sale, and you can see them at Harris Banjo Works on Instagram. We've posted a few photos on our website, wvpublic.org. Unfortunately, the community college closed the wood shop. Bradford is working to get tools together to build their own wood shop in their backyard. Bradford's punk band, Lips, has done some live shows again recently in Whitesburg, Kentucky. After the break, we'll meet hip-hop artists in Southwest Virginia. Genoa Davis, a.k.a. Genova, 
discovered rapping by way of poetry. I always wanted to sing, but I was also like a really shy kid. And poetry became uh, an outlet for me to get my feelings out. They used to rap about something and now they rap about nothing. But they You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Welcome back Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. And I'm Caitlin Tan. Okay, so I love this next story because it defies stereotypes that some people have about Appalachian music. Nicole Musgrave spoke with a group of hip-hop artists in the coal fields of Wise County, Virginia. Picture a large tent in the middle of a dark field, surrounded by mountains. Hundreds of people are packed under, dancing to the beats of Valley Boy Music Group, a local hip-hop collective. There's neon lights, smoke machines, and glow paint flying all around. Genoa Davis, a.k.a. Genova, was one of the performers at the field party that night. I don't even know how we got there. There was like 400 people. It was crazy. Uh, <laughs> Genova's 25 and grew up in Big Stone Gap, a town of around 5,000 in Wise County, Virginia. My family's all from Big Stone. Actually, the house I live in um, was my great-grandmother's and her mom's before that. Genova discovered rapping by way of poetry. I always wanted to sing, but I was also like a really shy kid, and poetry became uh, an outlet for me to get my feelings out. In college, some of Genova's cousins started making music together as Valley Boy Music Group. They knew he wrote poetry, so one day they asked him to write and record a verse on one of their songs. They used to rap about something and now they rap about nothing, but that nothing is something that everybody is I felt like from the get-go, I've always, like, had something to say. So it was just, like, uh, it was rewarding because, like, I was like, wow, I want to keep doing this. As a rapper, Genova writes a lot about his own life. And music is also a way for him to talk about the changes he wants to see in the world, like an end to mass incarceration and police brutality. I talk about a lot of things going on in society and, like, being a black person in society, like, in America, has never been easy. They killing us and I'm stressed. Make it to 30 the Wise County hip-hop tradition goes back farther than Genova and the Valley Boys. One of Genova's cousins and fellow Valley Boy is Raekwon Mitchell, a.k.a. R.K. Mitch. His dad's friends were big into freestyling. And when he was a budding rapper, R.K. Mitch remembers listening in as they improvised lyrics over beats. They were like, okay, let me see what you got, you know? And I was like, oh, so I went to pull out my little notepad, and they're like, no, 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 I want to hear what you can just come off the top with. I just looked at him, and I was like, oh, no, I, you know, I can't do that. I'm not a freestyler. I, I don't do that. I write. R.K. Mitch prefers to write out lyrics. And he never saw the older generation record anything. It was more about bragging rights among friends. With them, it was always just the energy of it, the, the love of the music and seeing their abilities to freestyle. And there was less of an emphasis on sharing it with a larger audience. I don't think many of them actually performed in this area, especially. There's not really a whole lot of places to perform. The Valley Boys have created their own performance spaces, like those field parties. They've improvised studios, too, out of dorm rooms, hotel rooms, bedrooms. We've been in situations where it's like, wow, you're really recording right here? And it's like, well, yeah, I mean, we're going to make it work somehow, I guess, you know. In Appalachian, Virginia, a lot of institutional support for music is targeted towards old-time country and bluegrass. So hip-hop communities have had to find ways to support themselves. Jared Sores is a photographer who's been documenting the hip-hop scene in another southwest Virginia town, Roanoke, since 2007, he says artists there had a similar way of making do or making it up. You know, it was very much like a DIY culture, like do-it-yourself mentality. Like, if it doesn't exist in Roanoke, we're just going to build it. And we're going to make do with what we have, and we're going to make it, you know, the best possible. Genova explains that he sees his music 
as a way to bring more material support to other hip-hop artists. I'm doing it so I can get the resources I need for the people I care about and for the community that I care about in this area. Last year, Genova won a grant to help him produce new music. The first thing he did was buy new equipment for several other hip-hop artists. One of those was Kelly Thompson, a.k.a. Pookie. He's helped others get microphones and interfaces and other gear that's necessary for recording. Dr. A.D. Carson is a hip-hop artist and an assistant professor of hip-hop at the University of Virginia. He explains that helping out the folks back home is part of the hip-hop tradition. Thinking about not just like shouting out home, but also how do we bring the, the people from where we're from into the space where they might also have access to those resources. In Pookie's third floor apartment in downtown Wise, Virginia, Genova's helped Pookie turn his spare bedroom into a makeshift studio. A mattress is propped up against a wall to muffle the street sounds below. Pookie sits at a computer that Genova bought with the grant money and starts making a beat. So I'm going to start with a nice little chord. We're going to put a little E minor seventh here. Pretty nice. I like that. He and Genova have been friends since middle school, and they've been making music together for a couple of years now. Here's Genova. Whenever he makes a beat, like, and if he's had me in mind, like, he'll put, like, these little sounds here and there. And I'm like, ooh, like, <laughs> he put that in there just for me, like. Pookie was inspired to learn to make beats by watching Genova and some local producers at work. I was just totally in, 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 impressed. I was like, wow, this is how music is made. Long term, Genova hopes to help establish cultural arts centers in the area to better support artists of all kinds. I feel like there's way more artistic individuals in this area that we know. They just, like, don't have the resources to produce their art. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Nicole Musgrave in Wise County, Virginia. This song is called Celebrate. It was produced by Pookie. And it's off Genova's latest EP, 25 to Life. It's available on most streaming services. We'll also have the link on our website, wvpublic.org. Next, we're going outside in one of the most beautiful places in Appalachia, Dolly Sods. In case you're not familiar, it's this wild place full of rocky ridges, soggy bogs, and beautiful views. And it's the site of an annual nature walk called the West Virginia Wildflower Pilgrimage. This year was the 59th time that wildflower and birding experts descended on the area for the event. And I decided to make the pilgrimage myself. So, Mason, had you walked it before this year? No, but my dad was a biology professor who specialized in the plants and trees of Appalachia. He passed away in 2011, but this kind of event would have been right up his alley. Really? How do you think? Well, my dad would have known these wildflowers, these birds. There were a lot of folks like that in the Canaan Valley when I was there in May. Like Margot Cavalier, who came down from Pittsburgh. It's been a while since I've been hiking up uh, in Dolly Sods, and I'm anxious to go with a bunch of people who know what they're looking at. I'm, I'm beginning to know what I'm looking at, but uh, it'll be great to go with uh, some pros. Bill Beatty, a naturalist from Wellsburg, West Virginia, leads the excursion. His is the only trip during the pilgrimage weekend where participants are required to come up to speak with him ahead of time. He needs to know they'll be able to complete the hike. It's not for the faint of heart. You know, people come up to me and say, yeah, we walk in, in the mall three days a week, five miles. And, and I used to let them go on, but uh, now if, if someone says that to me, I say, this isn't even close to what you experience in the mall. Beatty is joined by a Forest Service biologist who really knows his birds, mosses, and lichens. And a botany professor. These are my dad's people. They remind me of how he talked to his friends dropping goofy, plant-based puns, and cracking a lot of inside jokes. And what family are Bluettes in? Rubiaceae. 
matter, family? It does matter. <laughs> okay, we stopped here. He'll be here all day, folks. <laughs> now, Beatty knows this landscape at Dolly Sods really well. I stopped here because you see the opening down there? Yeah. At the far end of that opening, we're going to be coming this way. That's the dog leg of Alder Run Bog. Alder Run Bog is the bog where Northland Loop Trail goes down to. Some of us may get wet feet. The trip leaders like Beatty point out wildflowers along the way, but the group's members have plenty of expertise themselves. Like Melissa McCormick, a scientist at the Smithsonian Research Center who lectured about orchids the night before. Here she is talking with Margot Cavalier and others in the group about a flower known as trailing arbutus. This is what you're referring to? Yes. A pinkish white Yeah, there's another little flower right here. Oh, it's beautiful. And, oh, there's a little pocket of flowers right here. Oh. Now, my dad's big thing was trees. Besides teaching at the local community college in my hometown, he spent a lot of time traveling around and doing research all through the mountains, including right here in Dolly Sods. My dad's probably rolling over his grave. Do we, what's the evergreen that's through here? Stink at trees. <laughs> Now, I used to know my trees, but the thing with specialized knowledge is, if you don't use it, you lose it. But I knew there was something about those trees. What was the uh, dominant evergreen we were seeing back in that area we started out in? Uh, red spruce. Red spruce? Yeah. I knew my dad was rolling in his grave when I asked that question. I even said it, and his specialty was red spruce, so he oh, was really? definitely doing, getting a workout. The biggest red spruce in the world were probably in Canaan Valley and up here. And they were all timbered, everything. I helped my dad on some of his red spruce plots, which were sprinkled up and down Appalachia's high elevation spots. He kept close track of what spruce stands looked like, what else was growing, and how healthy these trees were, especially the oldest ones. He stayed faithful to these red spruce trees, checking in on them every couple of decades, sometimes more often. Of course, there's more to this hike than just the spruce stands. Okay, let's do this. We're gonna head down towards the bog and get our feet wet. Beatty calls this the Allegheny Front Vista Trail. It crawls all over, down through a bog, up and down rock fields marked by stacked cairns, and through dense thickets of rhododendron and mountain laurel where Beatty found paths, probably cut by hunters years ago. After miles of tromping, we climb a mountain ridge into a thicket of chokeberry. At which point, even Beatty gets turned around. We're gonna go back down Okay. Reverse engines. Back. Reverse engines, We're going peoples. back. <laughs> but at the end, we're rewarded with a beautiful vista, looking down into a valley. And then, Whole valley. Whole valley's full of a rainbow. They may have to take get a sunglasses here. off. Oh, okay. One of the trip members notices a rainbow down in the valley. It's really faint at first, but as the sky changes, the colors become more vibrant. Everyone runs over to check it out. <laughs> the experience, and especially that unforgettable ending, leave the hike's participants worn out, but also exhilarated. I asked Margot Cavalier about what she's feeling. Oh my God, that was phenomenal, wasn't it? With that fog bow at the end. Whoa, it was just, I mean, I can't believe it. It was just fantastic. I just turned 68, and it kind of makes me feel like, you know what? While I can do this, I got to push myself like this. It's just, it's wonderful to be out here. You just feel so alive, you know what? For me, the hike brought me closer to my father, who died 10 years ago this month. These are places he walked, with the kind of people he walked them with. Last school year, high school students in Fayette County, West Virginia, exchanged audio letters with teenagers in Wales. They talked a lot about the pandemic, and it turns out 
much of what they've experienced is universal. Sam McCarthy and Ella Cudlip are from Merthyr Tidfil, Wales, and Brooke Thomas and Mackenzie Kessler are from Fayette County, West Virginia. Hello, my name is Mackenzie Kessler, and right now I'm sitting in my favorite spot. It's in my papa's junkyard, and it's typically really peaceful here. I can see wild animals and hear some tame ones, but um, my favorite thing about this spot is that you can't see any of the houses. It's like a separation from all of that. That's something I love about West Virginia as a state. You can have the ability to separate yourself from everything. It's hard to choose a favorite food. I love Chick-fil-A's chocolate chunk cookies, but unfortunately I haven't had one since the quarantine started. But I also love buffalo chicken dip, and my mom has had some free time on her hands to make that more often. When it comes to going into senior year, I've been thinking a lot about it. I'm not typically emotional about things like this, but when people mention senior year, I change the subject pretty fast. I guess just the thought of the big life change after graduating makes me nervous, but it's an exciting nervous. Hi, my name is Ella and I live in Merthyr Tidville in Wales. Right now I'm living with my boyfriend and I have been for around 13 weeks. I just had my birthday on the 14th of June and finally turned 18, which means I can buy anything in a shop or a store. Um, The best thing about quarantine is that I can decide what my day is going to be. As much as I love my college and my work, it's nice to have a break from everything and concentrate on my relationships uh, with the people closest to me. The negatives of quarantine is that my driving test was cancelled two days before I was supposed to take it, which is why me and my boyfriend go on lots of walks instead and not drives, sadly. (laughs) Um, Another negative about quarantine is that I don't get to see my dog every day. Her name's Bailey and she's a black lab and I love her so much. But the thing I miss the most is my nan and my grandfather. They've done everything for me and I can't wait to give my nan a cutch when it's all over. And in Wales we say cutch instead of hug. Hey Ella, happy late birthday. You actually share the same birthday with my mom, which is pretty cool. Um, When it comes to your driver's test being postponed or cancelled right whenever you were about to take it, I am so sorry about that. I have friends that are going through similar things. and But I hope you get to get your test soon and you can start going on drives with your boyfriend. And we have a dog, too. He's a little beagle, and his name is Shiloh. It would be so hard to be away from him for very long because we leave for two hours and come back, and he just cries and cries like we've been gone forever. But I hope you get to be with your dog more soon and that you get to give your nan and grandfather a kutch. I'm pretty sure that's how you say it. Um, It's pretty cool that y'all say that instead of hug. I might have to start using that. But anyways, it was nice hearing from you. Hi, my name is Sam McCarthy and I live in Merthyr Tidville in Wales. I just turned 18 on the 25th of June, so I know I'm legally an adult and I can drink and smoke, but I don't want to smoke. Lockdown's been weird and new. Some things I do miss from being in lockdown is uh, having my guitar lessons and my driving lessons. That's been put on hold, which I'm a bit sad about because I was excited to drive. One thing I wouldn't change about lockdown is living with my girlfriend. It's just been the best time and we've been able to grow a lot and bond a lot more, (laughs) which I think has made us stronger and this made me excited for the future as well. So uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. I hope you're all doing well over there. Hello, I'm Brooke. It's very nice to meet both of you. It's amazing to hear your quarantine has been going well in Wells. It was nice hearing you both talk about your hobbies and what you enjoyed doing. I also enjoyed taking walks with my families, giving them hugs or a cut, as you say. Because of COVID-19, I had to leave school my junior year. So basically, I'm a senior now. That's a bit 
nerve-wracking, but I'm mainly more excited than scared because I'm finally going to be an adult soon, and I've waited for this moment my whole life, and I'm excited for the opportunities I'm going to have. Um, I personally would rather be in person for schooling because I find myself very scattered and I always feel like I'm missing something when we're doing virtual school. So I hope that I can get myself into a better routine and be more self-disciplined, which this could be what helps me with that when it comes to virtual things. But anyways, um, I would love to hear how Wales is responding to this, what you all are facing when it comes to returning to school, what you are choosing over if you have options. Hi guys, it's Ella. It's so nice hearing from you again. Right now in Wales, the COVID rates are really low, but we're still in a lockdown for another few weeks. I was supposed to move back in with my parents after living with my boyfriend, but for my mental health, I chose to move in with my grandparents. I still can't drive. I've had my fifth test cancelled and my next test is the 9th of April. Every day I take my grandparents on a drive to wherever we want to go and sometimes we stop to feed the horses. I love my grandparents so much. And we made a bird feeding stand um, in the garden and they, <laughs> we always give them leftovers because uh, my nan cooks so much food. She cooks every day. Uh, another rule in Wales is that we can form a bubble with another household. So um, I still get to see my boyfriend, Sam. And we always go on walks whenever we can. And uh, we're currently binge-watching Breaking Bad for the second time. Um, we like writing scripts as well. Uh, we're currently writing a comedy TV show. Hi guys, it's Sam. It's starting to get pretty boring being in lockdown for such a long time but we're feeling optimistic about this year with the vaccines rolling out so fast. My girlfriend Ella and I are even hoping to go to a music festival in August, which will be such a nice escape after this chaotic year. Some changes that have happened is that I'm making sure to keep active in lockdown by exercising every day and going on long walks with Ella. And we always find new places that we never knew were right outside our doorstep. The biggest change for me is my new job at Pizza Hut. It's pretty boring there at the moment because the restaurant isn't open so we're only doing takeaways and it's never busy. But still, it's a nice change from being stuck in the house and I get some money too which is always helpful. And I'm not quite sure what my plans are after Covid. I'm thinking of going to university but I'm not sure if I should take a gap year until I know. I'm mostly excited to start doing normal things again like going to music festivals, taking drives to the beach, going to the cinema, shopping, restaurants and everything else. It's going to be an expensive year. Because of this pandemic, I've had to put a lot of my hobbies on hold, like seeing friends and going to school and after school activities. So that's been a bit rough to deal with, but I've been working around that and I'm just focusing on spending time with my family and exploring the wilderness and stuff, going places I've never been before in this beautiful state. And because there are essential workers in my family that are being exposed to this daily, we have had to take extra precautions and we're just trying to stay safe as best as we can. But we're also not letting fear get in the way and we're just enjoying life and staying positive through this because we know that we will get through this. Everyone will. My favorite hobby is training in Krav Maga, which is um, an Israeli self-defense or street fighting. I've done it for seven years, so since I was 11 years old. So um, I'm really looking forward to going back to training again because doing online sessions isn't the same. You don't get the same atmosphere. But yeah, I hope we get to hear back from you soon and um, maybe when things are back to normal, we can meet up for a future project. Okay, bye. 
That was Ella Cudlip and Sam McCarthy from Wales and Brooke Thomas and Mackenzie Kessler from Fayette County, West Virginia. They shared their audio letters as part of our Folkways project, reporting on the connections between Wales and Appalachia. To hear more of their letters, go to wvpublic.org. Last summer, only a couple months into the pandemic, we heard from two new dads. Chuck Klein, who works here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting as a video producer, and Joe Buckland, who worked in a restaurant but was furloughed. Let's listen back, starting with Chuck. Where it all really started for me was we started hearing of a pandemic on the news right at the beginning of March. On March 13th, the governor of West Virginia um, basically said, hey, we're closing schools down. That went into effect on the 16th. And by Governor Jim Justice put a stay-at-home order for the state of West Virginia, shelter in place. And it's like, holy crap, I'm about to have a baby. What kind of world am I about to bring my kid into? Uh, My daughter Olivia was born on February 19th, uh, right before the pandemic started. Uh, It kind of changed things. Um, I lost my job, much like uh, most of the country, it seems, uh, on March 16th. And I became a full-time stay-at-home father. I like to call myself a house dad. I bonded with my kid the minute she was born. Uh, Actually, that's not entirely true. It took me a couple of days uh, because I I remember now I was in shock. You know, my fiancé was in labor for 72 hours. And when Olivia was finally born, it was such a monumental moment. I cried, of course, but I knew that everything had changed in a good way. I, I, I knew that my life would never be the same, but I was so excited. There was a lot of anxiety for me over what if I get it? What if I struggle with it? What if I don't survive it? What if my baby gets it? Um, what if my children get it? You know, I think everybody went through these emotions. And so I was struggling with it a little bit. And on March 28th, I didn't sleep very well at all. I was up probably at 3 a.m. And I was sitting downstairs, just fiddling through a phone or something, just basically struggling a little bit, trying to get a grasp on this unwinding of our normal society, our normal way of life. And my wife, Glennis, texted me from upstairs and said, hey, what you doing? I said, just basically trying to focus myself and um, trying to calm myself down. And she replied with, I really need you to be calm because Kai is coming today. We were not going to the hospital. We had several reasons for that. She wanted to try to do it at home. And then with this pandemic, there was no way we were going to go to the hospital unless we absolutely had a super emergency going down. We had a plan. We didn't do any of it, but (laughs) that's pretty much the way birth goes, I guess. I'm running around with masks and gloves on and bottles of bleach and spray bottles of hand sanitizers and, you know, like I was switching, changing some sheets on the, on, um, on the main bed and all of a sudden, in one big bellow of a scream, I heard the baby cry. Nature just was like, no, we're just going to do it right here on the floor. Oh, no. Oh, no, And perfect timing, because this is where you come into the story. Yeah, you. Yeah. So then you were born. I know. It was a weird day, wasn't it? Born at 1 o'clock. My daughter's 
only now three months old, so there really wasn't a lot of things that I had to do with her. You know, babies that age, you feed them, you keep them clean, uh, you hold them when they cry, and you make sure they get enough sleep, and, you know, that's pretty much it. Now we're doing tummy time, which is kind of cool. Put her on her belly, and she's got to kind of push herself up and look around. You see, Mr. Fox? You see, Mr. Fox? Uh, yeah. It's really neat to watch this uh, little girl grow up into a person. See you, Daddy. That story originally aired back in June of 2020. A year later, Mason checked back in with Joe Buckland and Chuck Klein. Let's listen back to that conversation. The place that I was when I recorded that interview, you know, it was, I believe, June of last year. And I had a kid that was immobile still. <laughs> Those were the good times. You know, I could plop her and do tummy time and just, you know, kind of hang out with her. Now she's mobile. And 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., it's on me to be uh, her sole caregiver. Her mom uh, has been working from home, and she is a substance abuse counselor working from home. And, you know, due to HIPAA regulations, you know, I have to stay away. But, you know, it is difficult. There is a sacrifice. You know, I'm certainly not the first one. Uh, I won't be the last one. And I know that there's thousands of other fathers and, you know, mothers and caregivers in the same situation. And it's, you got to sacrifice. And that was the biggest adjustment, I think, that the pandemic brought. There are times when, you know, it's solely me. And that's not unique to fatherhood. But you know, there were times when we couldn't go to the store. I'm always, always paranoid about services that she's touched, who I'm letting her get close to. And I know that I've noticed it in Olivia now. And I don't know if, Chuck, if you can relate, but Olivia, there's a pandemic baby kind of thing where she hasn't been around people. You know, we've had to sequester her most of uh, you know, the majority of her life with my dad, someone who's, you know, very much a part of our lives, she's shy with, and she's shy with other family members that she doesn't see very often. And, I, you know, I wonder, you know, I wonder what kind of developmental issues the isolation that we've had to have her in is causing. Chuck, just to add on, I mean, the, it feels like those early years are really intense when you're going through them, but they they slip fast out of your memory as you get older, it feels like. So, you know, when you're looking back on this in 10 or 20 years, what's something from the last year that you, you want to remember? Well, I'm kind of an introvert, and I've honestly have kind of enjoyed having my family at home. I know it's probably wrong to, you know, wish that we could continue staying away from other people, but that's just me. I guess I guess one thing I'll remember is you know the, the little dude Kai's um, growth. You know, he's standing. He says hi, dad, dad, stuff like that. He's coming up on a year. Those are the moments that you'll remember, whether there's a pandemic or not. Joe, how about you? You know, when you look back, what is it you want to remember from these days that it's important not to lose? Uh. That's a question that has the potential to put me in tears, to be honest. Really, just the opportunity to have spent as much time with her and to watch her, you know, become a person, to see these character traits come out. You know, the first time she actually let me put her hair in a pigtail, just the pure joy of, hey, I was able to do this, and, you know, she's happy about it. The little things, I think, is what. I want to keep the smiles, the, the days concluded, you know, and I'm rocking her. I can, you know, just a clear memory of July or August of last year. And we had the window open and there was a cool breeze blowing in and we had done bath time and I was rocking her and she just nuzzled in and it just, it felt complete. And like Chuck says, it, these are the moments that would happen, you know, whether there was a pandemic or not. But just 
I've never felt so content in my life and so connected with the world around me through my kid and the love of my life. It sounds really cheesy, I know. <laughs> There's an appreciation, I guess. An extra appreciation. Yeah. Chuck, what's, what's something you've learned over the last year? Well, I mean, work-related, I, I lost about 20% of my income. I freelance as well. So I, I cut all that out, and I actually started selling bicycles. And I'm making more money. So I've learned that I'm not going back to that. <laughs> I've definitely learned how to uh, stay with this one a little better than, because I was forced to, you know. But uh, I learned I can do it a different way and be with the kids rather than be on the road. Again, that was Chuck Klein of Wheeling, West Virginia, and Joe Buckland of Mount Pleasant, Pennsylvania, talking with me back in May. So those were some of our favorite stories from the past year. Is there a story we didn't air you think we should have included? Let us know. Send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Blue Dot Sessions, Jake Exerces Fussell, Marisa Anderson, and Dinosaur Burps. Roxy Todd is our producer. Jade Arthur Holtz is our associate producer. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Twitter, at In Appalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash insideappalachia to sign up for our newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for Inside Appalachia wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.